Thomas, welcome. Hey, how are you? Good. You look dapper. Uh, yeah, it happens to be a Thanksgiving show. Whoa, okay. Well, thanks. Uh, who's giving thanks today? Who should we talk about who's giving thanks? Oh, well, you know what? Maybe the Japanese soccer team. They've done really well. <laughs> I know you're not watching, but the rest of the world is. So if we hear a little bit beeps here, it's coming from my line application. Everybody in Japan is having a party. Japan beat Germany for those who don't know in soccer world cup. So it's a, it's a big, no, should we even, despite a very late hour in Japan right now. Should we talk fast so we can get you back to the festivities? Uh, no, the, the game's over, you know, the victory is there. <laughs> Happened. All right. Well, let's talk about, uh, uh, what's happening in Iran right now. Yeah. So the bit, a bit sad, um, I have to say, but I think we, we, we should spend a little bit of time on this and, and, and just step back and, and analyze where we are in this now over two months old. The uprising, because it really is turning into an uprising. And I want to briefly take us through where we are as this conflict is getting internationalized, at least at three different levels. It involves Russia too. And um, it sort of is now sort of inscribed in the history of periodic upheavals in Iran that includes the Islamic Republic. And we know that at each of those upheavals, the regime doubled down. The despotic regimes, when they feel threatened, they double down because they're afraid of what? They're afraid of showing weakness. So the Shah, Reza Pahlavi, before he stepped down, actually, you know, flew out of Tehran. He had this speech on TV when he appeared very weak and it was pretty obvious that he will be swept for, from power. Hence, in English language, we have the term strongman. The strongman has to appear strong, not weak. And I don't know whether Mr. Fatami at 83, um, is really strong physically, but it seems like his regime still is. And I give you a couple of examples, what this regime usually does whenever it's com confronted with a significant upheaval. The, the history of modern contemporary, not very modern, but contemporary Islamic Republic in Iran can be easily divided into the periods of each of the presidencies, at least since 1989, since Rafsan Jani became president, because each president has a four-year term, and usually they run for re-election. In all cases, they won re-election. So it's eight-year period since essentially 1979-1980, although we have to bracket out this initial period because it was completely clouded by the war against Saddam Hussein's Iraq in, in the 80, 1880s. But even during this period, as, as the regime was tightening the screw in the early 80s, around 1984, uh, there were uprisings, there were upheavals, and mostly it came from leftist group, Mujahideen Kalk, and the, 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 the response wasn't very strong. This group, MEK uh, acronym, appeared for many years in CIA as this great hope that, you know, somehow they'll come and topple the regime. And good luck, that didn't happen. And then Rapsanjani appeared, who was economical liberal. He ruled between 1989 and 1997. The reforms of certain economic, only economic liberalization didn't go very well in, in Iran. Indeed, this is precisely what the Shah was trying to do, right? Um, agrarian reforms, good idea, but of course that means that a lot of people will come to the cities and they didn't necessarily have much to do in the cities. Living in the outskirts of the, of the large cities 
they are usually referred to as Mosda, Mosda Zafan. So the deplorables probably, as uh, one of our senior politicians here would describe them, rural migrants, right? And so there were there were there were significant riots which were of economic nature with with unrest in Kazbin in 1994, which was particularly brutally um, destroyed. So uh, what does the regime do in response to those upheavals? Do they liberalize? Do they reform? Do they offer anything to the population? No, they double down. Think about Putin at the back of your mind, right? What happens when he's under pressure? So in, during this period of Sanjani period, the regime um, strengthened that volunteer militia, Basij militia, whose role is to uh, fight the, the, the opponents to the regime. They create the riot police, which was called NOPO. That was the, 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 the response. Then we have the period of a very liberal um, president, Katami, Mohammed Katami, between 97 and 05. Some of you may remember, there's a little bit of hope. Uh, his timing wasn't great because uh, it just happened that halfway through his presidency, George W. Bush appeared and he put Iran straight on his map of the axis of, of evil. But he also had a lot of um, hardline right-wing enemies within the regime, especially the security services. But since he came with a lot of hope, uh, students, especially students, hoped for you know, potential changes in, in, in the regime. And there, there were demonstrations and general movement uh, created by, by, by those young elites. Um, this security services reaction was more of the same. They put snipers together, so Fatahin. They used paramilitaries of Hezbollah, another, another grouping. So they tightened the system. At the, at, at the level of the entire country and also different provinces. And then we have a period of Ahmadinejad, whom we remember for his quixotic attitude to the existence of Israel and so on, especially in this country. He rules from 2005 to 2013, typical kind of left-wing, I'd say, um, mm -hmm. populist, uh, but strongly aligned with the, uh, with the uh, clerics. And the crisis came halfway through his uh, role during the re-election attempt in 2009. And of course, the Green Revolution that took place at that time and the leadership of both Mehdi Karubi and Hossein Moravi, who were political figures from inside the regime that wanted to reform Iran. So that uprising was very much a political thing. Mostly the elites that, that, that were fighting. This is the first time that they were referred to by the religious establishment as the Muhareb, so the enemies of God, um, you know, fighting those by the Basij militia was compared to Karbala, the Battle of Karbala, the original Battle of Karbala in 680, that actually generated this split between the Shiites and, and the Sunnis for good after Hussein's uh, death, so the grandson of Muhammad. Um, the battle was won by the, by the Umayyads, Yazid Umayyads, the, the, the Sunni faction, and that's that's a cleavage that remains to this to this day very visceral uh, within the Ma Muslim community as such, and of course Iran is, as well as the the main kind of beacon of Shiite twelver religion. Anyway, re reaction of the regime, crushing the movement, bringing the uh, uh, Revolutionary Guard, reforming Revolutionary Guard to be stronger, to fight stronger, um, brainwashing sessions, creating the provincial guards of Revolutionary Guards. Uh, this, this was the, the, the reaction, okay? And then we have another period, again, 
there's a bit of a pendulum. So presidency moves to someone who's a little bit more reformist, uh, Rouhani between 2013 and 2020. And here this time, because of the sanctions, because of the collapse of uh, the, uh, the country's economy, while the elites were hoping for some reformist, um, uh, reforms, uh, political reforms, economically, the Mostaza Fan really suffered, the deplorables really suffered. There was a lot of inflation. There was, there was an upheaval in December 2017 and again in 2019, in November, clearly like several days after I left the country, in 29 provinces uh, were in some form of, of, of unrest, severe, severe unrest. The response of the security services, more crackdown. For the first time, internet was shut down. The, uh, the IRGC, CGs, um, PGs, those, those provincial guards were strengthened again, um, more crackdown response. Nothing else offered. And eventually Rouhani's presidency came to its end and uh, Raisi has been, was, was elected in, in 2020. In her, he's in his second year now of his, of his first term and he's considerably conservative. So the pendulum switched, but nothing really happens fundamentally. So why am I comparing those different uh, stages? Because it reminds me of the history of upheavals in another country. And that country is Poland. Uh, is Poland. And it might come as a surprise because, of course, culture has nothing to do. But, it, you know, this is also a country that suffered under a, a very brutal regime for a long time. Why am I bringing that example? From what I just presented, you'll notice that the unrest is usually located in some specific socioeconomic group, right? So it were most as a fun first, then there were students, politicians, but not the deplorables. And then again, the deplorables, but not the elites. So there's mm. always another group that this sort of fights for, for, for either for more economic freedom or for more political freedom, but they never call us together against the regime and especially the bazaaris, bazaaris, so people who run the trade or you can say retail trade, bazaars, which usually grow all around the, the mosques, which is the most of the public activity uh, happens and probably the only place where you can meet people that you don't know otherwise. This is, uh, you know, the bazaaris have been a strong supporter since Rafsanjani's presidency of this regime. They were also strongly against the Shah towards the end of Shah's rule. For a variety of reasons, the system that doesn't bring, say, Western retailers, you know, no Carrefour there is good for bazaaris, right? So they are relatively conservative, but they want economic progress and they want people to be sufficiently affluent for the consumption to continue at some level. Sure. Anyway, the two groups have not really connected. And why am I bringing the example of Poland? Because until the, the opposition sat around that table that you know, Greg, in Jablonna for four decades, that was precisely the, the, the plague of the opposition. It was either an upheaval of the working class, especially under communism, you can call it working class, so large industrial mm -hmm. enterprises, and people were just rising against, for example, huge inflation, so on, very little actual political uh, consciousness that came with this. So it was just visceral rejection 
of a very non-responsive regime. And that was the case, for example, 1956. But that happened after several years of very severe Stalinist um, destruction of the former elites. So kind of finishing the job that the Nazis couldn't quite finish in the 1940s. The new working class, many of which benefited from the economic growth of the early post-war reconstruction and industrialization, didn't care much about it. You know, they came from the countryside to the cities. They didn't care about the 1940s elites being, uh, to a large extent, exterminated. And then suddenly they rise, but the intelligentsia, this actually word comes from Russian, that, that never really responded, never, never backed them up in, in, in the 50s. Uh, the regime kind of reinvented itself in the, in the mid to late, late 50s. By 1960s, it's the turn of the new generation of the elites, the students coming out. The students demonstrate against the regime. The regime um, comes with different ideas. Now, what can we do to rally uh, the population? Let's, um, what about anti-Semitism? That's a good idea, right? So they picked up on, you know, sometimes fertile ground and tried to destroy those, those elites, uh, the, the, the young new generations, some of whose leaders were of Jewish origin. Uh, but the workers, they didn't join them, right? Two years forward, 1970, you have an uprising, and especially in the coastal cities where the shipyards are. These are the workers again. What are the protesting against? Against sudden increase in the prices. So this is like the right. Iranian uprising of the late 2019 when the gasoline prices were liberalized, right? And people naturally, the, the poor people reacted to this with, uh, with a wave of unrest in different, different parts of the country. So this is 1917 Poland. People are shot in the streets, you know, tanks roll, but the elites don't join. And then you have another uh, movement in the 70s. Here, for the first time, we saw some connection, a little bit of a connectivity, a comedy of the defense of workers were set up among the intellectuals, younger intellectuals, to support the workers who were kicked out and you know, lost their jobs after a wave of strikes, which were again of the economic nature. And that preparatory work prepared the country for 1980 and the solidarity movement were the two different social classes that until then really didn't share much, eventually finally kind of dovetailed in their momentum to uh, push against the, the, the regime, which had a very strong backer in Moscow, of course. So that started, that process started in 1980. That requires people from different walks of life to come together strongly and, and support each other, even if one group feels, well, the, the, for me as a group, the risk-benefit uh, balance actually doesn't justify it yet. But maybe that's an opportunity because the momentum is there, right? So, so this is exactly what happened in 1980. Then, of course, there was martial law. Then immediately work took another, you know, decade almost. So we're here probably for a long haul in Iran. But why am I bringing it up? Because what started as a women's movement has spread out to very different groups of the society. So we have elites. You know, two famous actresses have been arrested this the, 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 this week um, after taking off the hijab. So there is still a very strong symbolically um, female movement. You see it also during that World Cup in, in Qatar, which is just, you know, across the bay from Iran. Uh, 
but also uh, we saw strikes, so economic woes that are being expressed mm -hmm. by, by workers in different parts of the country. And increasingly, we see an ethnic minority, ethnic element, which is probably the most dramatic because we see demonstrations and brutal crackdowns in Baluchistan. Baluchistan, this is the part of Iran, which is border, bordering Afghanistan and Pakistan. So on the western side of the country, mostly desert. There's an important city there, uh, Zahedan, and there are a lot of demonstrations constantly in Zahedan. We get actually some footage every every weekend from there. Uh, Baluchis are a, a minority. There are a lot more Baluchis in southern Pakistan. They're always, even in Pakistan, they feel disenfranchised by the Punjabis. But, you know, in Iran, it's a different story. There's, there are fewer of them in Iran, about one and a half, mm. I think, two million, eight million in Pakistan. When you're in... Some active madrasas in Qom, for example, you see a lot of students because they're of their dress. You can recognize people from Baluchistan. So Baluchistan is one, and of course, the other one is the Kurdistan. Kurdistan on the other end of the empire, eh, with uh, cities such as Mahabad, in technically Western Azerbaijan of Iran, but it's mostly a Kurdish area. And what we get from there is quite, quite remarkable. This is machine gun fire, machine gun fire on people. Um, the regime believes that because the original victim that, that started this was ethnically Kurdish, uh, there's a strong crackdown on Kurdistan, <laughs> which brings me to the first way in which this, this upheaval is uh, spilling over the border. So I mentioned this a couple of weeks ago that the you know, Iranian regime is now routinely bombing areas of Iraqi Kurdistan, just as Mr. Erdogan decided that the, uh, the 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 attack, the bomb attack in Istanbul is, of course, PKK's fault because it's easier to combat than ISIS in Syria. So he also bombed the Kurdish areas in, in Turkey while Iran is doing this in, in Iraq. So spare of thought for, for Kurds. But that's only one element. The second element is, of course, the commitment of the Iranian regime to uh, send more weapons to Russia. So two types of long-range, mid-range missile, Fatah, and long-range ballistic missile, Zalfa Ghar, are being added to the, what we know about the two types of drones that Russia purchased from Iran. This is really interesting because it brings us to the third issue. And it's a, this is complicated. You might remember, I mentioned this before, Volodymyr Zelensky criticized the role of Israel in the past. Of course, if there is one significant threat for Israel, it's Iran. Unfortunately, if Iran um, furnishes Russia with weaponry, it doesn't seem to be in to detriment of Israel. So less weaponry available for Iran is good mm -hmm. news for Israel. In other words, it's not necessarily in the interest of Israel for the Ukrainian war to end too quickly because of the Iranian commitment to Iranian commitment to, to um, uh, helping Russia. Because inventory of weapons is finite. Inventory of weapons is finite everywhere. We discussed it, you know, right. a few weeks ago here on the show about our problem. Something that, right. you know, it's some people very strongly support Ukraine. They don't understand that our depots are also limited. And we have yes. potentially other contingencies somewhere else. Unfortunately, Russians know about it too. So in that axis between Russia, Iran, and North Korea, for now, it's not China in terms of the equipment and ammunition. Mm. Iran is now a significant supplier, but Iran is also now very openly enriching uranium. So it's a dilemma for Bibi Netanyahu's um, new government in Israel, 
because the normal knee-jerk reaction should be to take swift action against Iran's um, advancement of their uranium program. Quite why you, uh, Iran has decided to go public about it is anybody's guess, but I think a lot to do with deflection of the you know internal problems into the external arena. So this is becoming now quite quite dangerous, I think, in the in the Middle East. How this 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 whole um, system, this, the, the entire upheaval in Iran is beginning to spill over into other countries, including including Iraq and potentially also uh, Israel. So. That's that's something I just wanted to mention. Uh, the uh, the issue of the of the supplies, the Iranian supplies to Russia, are a serious problem because I think we have lost plot of what Putin's actual end goal in Ukraine is. Mm -hmm. Right? When you think about, let's step back twelve months when Lavrov came with his Brezhnev doctrine demands that NATO should be rolled back entirely. Uh, to the 1991 borders, no Baltics, no Poland, no Romania, no nothing. You know, Ukraine essentially ours and demilitarized. That seemed okay. At least there was some conceptualization around. It. Then we arrive in, in, to, to February. Uh, Putin gets the you know the green light from Xi Jinping in Beijing. He attacks the country with all this dogma about denazification, demilitarization. So it's. We can conclude that the objective was to replace the the government of Ukraine with Moscow-friendly government. Okay, that probably was one of the early mm -hmm. stage goals. Failed. Okay, subsequent taking of Kiev failed militarily. Next one, you know, taking of the Kharkov region failed. Next one, let's uh, have full independence for the two Donbas republics, right, which have been partly occupied since 2014, Luhansk and, and Donetsk. That failed because another idea came, well, let's incorporate these two, as well as Zaporozhye and Kherson, to the Russian Federation, which they actually tried to do, actually did by, by, by Russian law, for what it's worth. Failed again, right? Kherson has been at least partly liberated. So everything yes. that they tried, they failed. And since that loss of Kherson, what are they doing? They're basically demolishing civilian infrastructure in in Ukraine. So is the goal just utter destruction? But, you know, anybody's guess. It's not very clear what the goal is. The problem is if Putin himself and company are not clear about their goals, they might end up in a place that they, you know, that's not right for them. That's, I think, the old Yogi Barra saying. So very difficult right now to figure it out. When I, when I think I had a note, you know, made for this show probably six months ago. I was wondering, what is that I'm going to be afraid of six months down the road? And I, I mm. made three points. The first point was that I was afraid of Western pro-Putinists to rear their really ugly heads again, right? That in the West, there will be a lot of right-wing populists who will come victorious in elections, whenever elections are, are staged, or somehow in different countries will come say, you know, enough is enough. Let's go back to the, to the old, old regime with with cheap energy and so on. So I was afraid of that. Has it happened? It hasn't. Quite the opposite has happened because traditionalist parties, so right-wing parties in Sweden and Italy, although they won the election, they won the election in the name of Western alliance. Yes, they want yes. to have a slightly different cultural bent and different economic ideas than the center left or Brussels in general, 
but they're not pro-Putin and they're very clear about it. Okay, so that's number one. We know how the elections went in this country. Mr. Bolsonaro is still trying in Brazil. Poor chap, I feel so sorry for them. Um, but, you know, overall, it's not being a great year for, for right-wing uh, populists. The second thing I was afraid of was this uh, gamble on Africa and African grain imports, right? That somehow the pressure from the global South under mm, the threat of hunger and a very strong pro-Russian propaganda that the Chinese uh, me uh, media have deployed all around the global South, not, east, not least in the South, East Asia, Middle East, and Africa, and Latin America to some extent, as I detect from, from my friends there. That was, 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 was a problem. We know that uh, Russia tried to pull out of the grain agreement a couple of weeks ago. And who actually stepped up to the plate? Mr. Erdogan, in whose economic interest it was not yes. that the, this, this deal be uh, scrapped. So that didn't quite happen. So the second threat didn't happen. Leaves us with a third one, which is the winter. And winter is problematic because right now we're going to have more population movements within Ukraine and probably out of Ukraine as this infrastructure is being demolished and, and really very badly damaged, some of this for, for a long term. What military purpose that has, again, anybody's guess, not changing anything on the front line, but possibly allows uh, Russians to survive winter and then with those mobilized troops start again in spring. So. In this context, one of the three continues to be a, prop, a, a, a real threat, but I, that leaves Ukraine under quite a lot of pressure to come to some kind of ceasefire agreement. And the, the pressure comes from various sources. You're, you hear, you know, a little bit dissonant voices mm -hmm. from Mark Miller who says that's an opportunity, personal staking. Let's just grab the opportunity while we can. Austin, Secretary of Defense, says no, no, let him. You know, this Ukrainians hold the side. Blinken says the same thing. There's a bit of a disconnect between the military and the and and the political side. And I think the military has to take into account that we have more, unfortunately, than one theater to to look after. Assuming that uh, you know our role in the in in the Persian Gulf is pretty well defined, but East Asia is a continuous uh, problem, and we don't know uh, for how much how much t more time we have there. So this is an issue for as long as Western economies have not really switched over to a war economy. I mean, really, there are no ammo stocks in, in, in France. If yeah. France will, were to take over the responsibility for arming Ukraine from the United States, United Kingdom. So uh, clear issue, I think, you know, Kiev is, is, is right, procrastinating on it, because what's the point of going to Minsk 3 and Minsk 23 and 123 if the other side will use only this piradishka, the term I used before, so breathing through to prepare for another offensive at some point next year. The only way in which the ceasefire would work is the rump Ukraine that's left after this conflict is provided with ironclad defense guarantees. That is, uh, Western troops in Ukraine protecting the country from that, from, from further invasion. Then maybe there is, there is there is an option for for now. I'm afraid we with so much pressure on the on on the Ukrainian military from the population, which is very strongly committed to to the to the case to the cause. Yeah. I think we're into more Iranian ballistic missiles raiding on the Ukrainian cities. 
is there a point at which leaders of the framework world view what Russia is doing and just say a red line has been crossed and we have to do something more than we are doing now, whether it's providing Ukraine with uh, types of weapons that had previously been withheld or becoming involved themselves. Is there, is there some red line that Russia could cross? Because it seems like whatever is being done as deterrence is not working as deterrence. Yeah, of course, deterrence didn't work because Russia launched the war. Deterrence didn't work. And it's, it's, you know, I mean, even today, today the bombings in Ukraine are perhaps the worst in the history of the war. And, you know, the entire country's without electricity and water and internet and, you know, it, Correct. is there some red line that needs to be drawn that really gets I'm out? Glad I'm glad you're using this metaphor because it will allow me to expand on that. But before I get there, let's not forget that high-end military equipment is something these days that is controlled not by the forces in the field, mm-hmm. but by the supplier, by the exporter. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. The same problem with the, say, Swiss ammunition that for, you know, a quirky constitutional reason cannot be, cannot find its way to the battlefield because it's, it's, it's provided to say German platforms, but those German platforms cannot use it in Ukraine because it would be against the Swiss law. Okay. So it's same a contractual way. or legal. Contractual. Yeah. It's a legal, it's a legal okay. issue, right? With, of course, the legal the, the, the legal framework was created long before this war started, and it's not that straightforward to change that. Then you have the technical issue, the technical issue. So like, like let's say Switzerland recently bought a lot of F-35s. A lot of opposition to this because, hey, we are a neutral country. Why would we buy something which, by definition, is going to be always maintained by the American um, technical support, right? The same with the ammunition, artillery ammunition and missiles. Whoever provides determines the range, determines the use, determining what and how. So if you are a large uh, military equipment producer and exporter, you actually are in charge of strategy Mm -hmm. and operations of the user. In other words, Ukraine does not have a free hand here. So some Mm -hmm. of the countries are trying to, you know, wiggle themselves out of this uh, American tutelage. Poland is a good example. They're buying a lot of uh, platforms from South Korea to be a little more independent of U.S. Uh, when the day comes to project um, force into, say, Smolensk, right? So beyond the confines of the Polish-Lithuanian-Ukrainian Commonwealth of the past. That's, that's, that's something that America would not allow to happen yeah. right now, right? For, to Poland, and they're not, Washington does not want this, this particular conflict to spill over to Russia. If it wasn't for China, that the situation would be different. But unfortunately, this large global conflict is between the West and China, with Russia playing only a support role. And so right. that's the drama for, for, for Ukraine. Now, in terms of the red lines, remember when I explained the history of the Russian flag coming originally from the Dutch flag, and the Dutch flag didn't have red originally, but orange. This orange didn't stick because the chemicals in the 17th or early 18th century are not good enough and this orange tend to red. 
problem with the red lines, at least since Obama presidency, is that they do exactly the opposite. They become orange or pink or something. They're not really very red, right? They're wrong. Yes or no binary computer logic. There's a lot of shades of orange, shades of pink, if you wish. And Putin and his cronies are really good at testing different shades. So it's not going to be a major nuclear blast over Lviv. That's not going to happen. Hence, what you know, we were interrogating ourselves a week ago, this missile over Poland, what did happen, right? Or any hybrid attack on infrastructure in the West. At which point is this a red line, for example, triggering Article 5 of NATO, if it, if it, if it, affects a NATO country or doing anything to Ukraine that we would define as a clear red line. But there has to be a common definition of, the, of what that is. And because some of these definitions are very clear, Russia is not going to overstep this. So a lot of this is like this, you know, frog in the in, in, in heat that you kind of continue to increase the heat until it yeah. dies rather than suddenly, you know, jacking it up and the frog jumps out and survives. So that's, that's, that's the mission. I think you know, we probably are a little bit less astute about the escalatory letter and which colors or, or, or which shades of red each rock on the letter has than the likes of Putin, whose entire exercise of power for 22 years uh, is based precisely on honing that skill. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, so yeah, so let's maybe uh, go back a little bit to our, we still have some time, the discussion from last week when you presented to us this fascinating story of the, of, of, of the Warsaw Russian conclave. I don't know if this is actually Congress. Congress is the word that they're using. Congress. Yeah. yeah it's okay. a con. Congress. Okay. So, um, I, uh, went to uh, into some of the Russian websites looking at uh, what Russians, Russian elites, although not necessarily government people, are thinking right now and how that could be positioned vis-a-vis those different views that we see and to which we have a lot more access freely in, in the West. So the exile groups, which are predominantly liberals, yes, sometimes radicals, you can make an argument, some of them between those two, and who are often inside Russia accused of being naive, pro-Western, that they want to bring another perestroika, which is really a, a four-letter world word in, in, in Russia because it brings back the bad memories of 1990s. So there are essentially two groups that I detect currently in the, maybe three, but they fall into two categories within Russia itself and how they think about the future, not internal politics, which is mud, <laughs> But the um, the global role, uh, both politically, economically, of the future Russia after this war, whatever the outcome of this war is, and none of these ever believes, at least in writing, that the war will be lost. <laughs> okay, so let's just set that aside. This is really about how Russians want to want to think about themselves in future. And so, the two large kettles, the, I, the one is a group that I would compare to neocons, American neocons 20 years ago, mm-hmm. um, but it includes Eurasianists as well. And the other group is paleocons, paleocons. So the neocons were the likes of 
Wolfowitz and Pearl and the Cohen's, and these, these were the people here. The paleoconservatives in the U.S., for those who know our history, is uh, Pat Buchanan, you know, Andrew Novak, and people like that, right? Mm. The big difference there. And it seems like Russians don't have enough inventiveness to come up with their own terms, so they use American terms for, to, to describe themselves. The first about the neocons, because they include that group of Eurasianists, and the most famous Eurasians, at least since 1990s, is Mr. Dogin himself. So mm-hmm. he's actually more interesting than others because he's extremely syncretic. So he divides the world into two groups, taking just geopolitics as, as, as the background, the group of, you know, the oceanic people, the seafarers. So back to Alfred Thayer Mahan, so American commander who projected, you know, power through the oceans, like the United States. And then he picks up on Helford McKinder's view of a large continental powers, such as Russia. So the heartland historically, and, and, and these are more traditional. So community-based, traditional continental powers and more innovative, more mobile, uh, more swift and adjustable oceanic powers. So, so seafarers, right? So he takes those, those two and of course compares the great Russia with, with the United States as the ultimate alter ego of Russia. But he overlays an interesting layer um, borrowed from Karl Schmidt. Karl Schmidt was a Nazi ideologue, very interesting geopolitician, actually one of those who was not sent to Nuremberg after the war. He continued writing, living modestly and writing in West Germany until his death, I think in the 70s, if my memory is correct. Anyway, he's often quoted by um, writers, both uh, left and, and, and right, even, you know, Hannah Arendt, Slavoj Žižek, so extreme leftist wackos, uh, they often quote Karl Schmidt as a, um, as, as an, as an influence. Why? Because he brought this kind of a spiritual layer over that sort of division between people growing up in collectivities of very different geographies, right? So there is a spiritual struggle between the two. Now, Germany tried to build, you know, a strong Navy and compete with, with, against the UK, the late 19th century, early 20th century, not always very successfully. And we know what it eventually led to, but interestingly enough, Dugin has his counterparty in, um, in China, very close to the, to the current leadership there. His name is Zhang Shigong. Uh, he's also a sort of ideologue of conservative socialism, as they call it. So their idea is, what do we do with this war, right? Because historically, when you look at their writings of these people early on, they saw an alliance between Russia, guess what? Japan and Germany. Japan and Germany is those countries that are very uncomfortably forced into this oceanic American-driven uh, universe. Kind of interesting because Japan is, you know, not only good at soccer, they're also an archipelago. So par excellence, an oceanic uh, nation. But big obsession for Russia, at least since 1905, lost war against, against Japan. So there are, there are statements. If you, if you, if you read their older writings was that independence, independent Ukraine is an invasion of the Russian territory itself. So the role of Russia is to take over Ukraine to play against the same role in Europe as Peter the Great did after winning the Great Northern War in 1721, the, the, the peace of Neustadt against uh, Karl XII, so the, the Charles XII, the king of Sweden, who, by the way, died during this war in 1718. Anyway, Russians won and became this para-European empire from that point on. Somehow, those neocons, the Russian neocons, believe that bringing Russian 
peace on the Dionets through the you know plains of of Ukraine, they will again play an important role in some cohesive understanding, maybe no longer with Vienna, but certainly with Berlin and Paris for the future of Europe away from, you know, ugly oceanic uh, United States and offshore balancing United Kingdom, because we in this one great family from Vladivostok to Lisbon. So, so uh, Mr. that is, it was, you know, this is coming well in, right? I mean, we're fighting war for peace. Yes, and they are looking for um, allies in the West among right-wing populists. So they hope the right-wing right. populists, the likes of Trump, the likes of Salvini, the likes of Winders in, in, in Germany, Marine Le Pen in, in, in France, Aivde in Germany, they would come and support them in this great march towards freedom with a lot of cultural underpinnings. So let's get rid of the left-wing Brussels woke stuff. So yeah. it has, you know, broader support, as we discussed many months ago, you know, the Russian propaganda tried to appeal, is trying to appeal to certain different fractions of the society that are not helpful, happy about the cancel culture imposed by the center left and far left in the West. So they claim that, you know, Russia will bring the real values to the real European values to <laughs> Europe. But then, <laughs> it's almost if they're, you know, for the Le Pen, uh, um, we're saying that we're Le Pen and others uh, way to the right. We're doing this through you. You're not going to do it. You can't do we're it. Not, we're not, we're not, we're not great Russia, yeah. Without great Russia, which did it twice, you know, it rolled over Napoleon with his revolutionary ideas and our Tsar Alexander walked in Paris and then we destroyed Hitler and, you know, Stalin's army was in Berlin. Look, without us, you can't get rid of the woke notions. Only yeah. we can help you're incapable of doing it by yourself. So count on us. So here it is. We're walking through Ukraine, which has all almost has been wrenched away from the purity of the Eastern Orthodox Christianity by the scheming West, but it's Anglo-Saxon West. You have nothing to do with this continental Europe. Let's do it under our leadership. But there is a second group which disagrees with this. And these are the paleocons. And the paleocons here in the U.S. were very isolationist, very much religious conservative of the evangelical style. So paleocons in Russia actually have, since the beginning of the war, quite surprising converts from groups that we used to think were liberal, like uh, Dmitry Trenin, who was head of the uh, Carnegie Moscow um, Bureau. So now he's more on this side. He says, we should be against any dependence on the United States, but also on China, importantly. And what we have to drive uh, for is some kind of destabilization of the Western economic uh, system will, will be self-reliant. We'll go back to utter key, so new style of geoeconomics. You know, we could do it as a, as during Stalinism. Why can't we do it now? It's just create a, a statehood that's very strong economically without this, this uh, overexposure to other countries. But let's not hope for changing the West. There's no hope for changing Europe because we have no proof that the right-wing populists will support us. And here, they're not wrong, right? In terms of what's been happening this year specifically. So they're looking for allies India, but allies, right? India, Turkey, Iran, here and there, you know, an odd government in South America and so on. Of course, 
economically doesn't mean much to, to replace the, the, the Western European market, but they're more realistic about it. And what their concern is that many Russians naturally gravitate towards the West, right? Because of materialism, because of mm-hmm. cultural, you know, soft power. Very few pay attention to what's going on in India or even China. They're not, they don't, they are, these are not poles of attraction for Russians. So that's, that's something that paleoconservatives recognize. So they go back to Panslavism of people like Nikolai Danilovsky, who was very much against what Peter the Great did here. So that's, that's 150 years ago. Against Peter the Great stomping onto Europe. Why? Because rather than saving Europe from itself, it contaminated this pure Russian Slav soul with those bad ideas from the West. Let's not do it. We can still trade with them. Look at Soviet Union, had nothing in common culturally with the West, but still still could have normal relations. And so let's not count off the right-wing uh, populists and redefine uh, ge- ge- geoeconomics. And there is an article very interesting on it's globalaffairs.ru by a name I didn't know before. His name is Boris Mijuev, Mijuev, and he's speaking about the cultural indifference. When Russia has to develop cultural indifference to the West. So no more, you know, Abramovich yachts somewhere in Monaco. No, let's, let's just concentrate on the great heartbeat of, of this young Russian culture that has so much to offer. And if others don't want to, to, to accept from us, well, too bad for that. We're superior, right? So that's, that's what, what the main kind of two thinking poles are. And I'd be, you know, more interested to, to, to see what, how that compares with the liberals and radicals who are outside Russia, what they think about the future role of, of Russia. And there's a lot more to, to, to cover here, both in terms of what it actually means for the global economic system and more importantly, what it means for Ukraine and other countries of the Eastern Europe, because these groups have different ideas. We're running out of time, so maybe next time. (laughs) Well, there will be another week next week. Uh, So we will see you then. Uh, Thank you for being here, Thomas. Thanks, everybody, for joining us.